0: Welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements starting in 1839, going forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The beginning announcements, like usual. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Uh, you can also send me an email at Revolutions at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think about it, uh, what you think could be improved, what else. Please rate, review, subscribe on all platforms, Okay, here we go. Today we are talking about the first real city fully controlled by the Taiping Rebellion. Last week we catapulted the narrative into the war, part of the war, so they're not just kind of underground, kind of controlling a lot of the countryside in a rural area. They, for Today's episode, they're going to be controlling a city. This week we talk about what happened as they ruled that city, the city of Yongan. You can have a rebellion in any old place. For a real revolution, you need the sophistication a city can get you. Printing presses, access to refined trading networks, access to all sorts of goods, raw materials, industrial goods, Access to communication, transportation networks. So now the Taiping have it. Uh, the body of this episode is going to be informed mostly by God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence. There's part of it that I'll be going off into some of my own thinking on this subject, which we'll get to in a moment in a bit. Uh, the So we're looking at October 1, 1851, Hong Xiuquan and his family, they move into the former magistrate's residence with with everything that's there, courtyards, reception rooms, library, ornamental streams, and ponds. So they can spread out, they can leave their stuff set up, they don't have to wander from place to place. They've got the whole team together in the same place. And while it's nice to be able to travel from place to place to keep your movement going, it's even better to be in one place and settled. As they move in, the first official order is no looting. A recurring theme in Revolutions is you can't say you're there to liberate the people If you're robbing them, like, so if you look at the Russian civil war, the whites, uh, the anti-communists were terrible at this. Not only did they not have a coordinating vision, a real alternative to communism to offer, they raped, pillaged, murdered, forcibly conscripted. They did everything that the Reds were doing, but they didn't even have a vision that to offer other than communists bad. The communists in Vietnam and in China kept a no-looting policy that was pretty strictly adhered to, and so they won at least some public support. At least they were kind of different. At least they did that right. Uh, Also, there were rewards for people who supported the Taiping, death for anyone helping the the Qing, the... uh, the, the legitimate rulers or uh, people who otherwise fight the Taiping, you know, punished, executed. And they also worked very hard, the Taiping worked very hard to get the markets working again so people can go back to normal life. Uh, they plundered the homes of the rich and shared out some of the loot with the locals and they put the rest in the Taiping treasury. And the government treasury is an interesting question here. On the one side, you need resources with which to run the administration, pay the troops, compensate outsiders for losses. So like if, sorry, we accidentally burned your house down, uh, do you tell a third soldier from the left you pay for it? Or is there some common treasury from which that can be paid so that Everybody kind of pays into it, but it's like it's nobody's fault. Like you were just doing your job as a soldier, you shot the flaming arrow, you burned the thing down. Well okay, the movement will pay for it. So when you're when you are a government, you have to think of things like that. Uh, uh, the also the typing movement is still small enough at that point to kind of be a community, not a full fledged government. With a very distant capital, out of touch with the troops, so you know, you, you can pay for you know, the needs of the people. It's there's there's kind of a closer connection to what you're contributing to. So you're, you're contributing to this movement you're traveling with, rather than to some far off, distant government department that. Uh, Know, through a mistake in the paperwork they're going to ask you to pay again because you know, if the taxman thinks you haven't paid you haven't paid even if you've paid ten times you know, but then you know, when you have a common treasury you know, are the people in the leadership class going to just skim off of that so it's you know so as you as you set up more of a Formal government type structure. You need a a treasury, but then also they're not fully set up with full government departments yet. They also, as they're in the city of Yongan, they uh, come out with records of merits and demerits. So you know people are going to be identified for reward and promotion. Uh. And part of you know, regathering a, a movement's mojo after a long campaign is you know, taking a break, uh, regathering your strength, uh, re declaring allegiance to the central ideology. There was also the promulgation of a typing calendar, and it is appropriate to do this since a major milestone has been achieved. And it really digs into the revolutionary side of things. Even the day of the week, the month of the year, is named by the new ideology. And you you see this like in the Russian Revolution. It wasn't until the Tsar was out that they moved to the international calendar from the Julian calendar, which is about two weeks behind the international calendar, the Gregorian calendar. So it was a way for the Russian revolutionaries to say, we're scientific we're modern there is the creation of typing titles of nobility rank hereditary office honorifics for specific rank and station they you know chinese has this this rich vocabulary for nobility and what exact pronouns you can use i mean the the emperor even had a specific word for I that nobody else could use one of the running themes is going to be looking forward to the earthly paradise I think they say that they reach that when they reach the city of Nanjing you know full rewards will be given out then In communist countries uh, socialism was this transitional phase and so full communism is that future they're looking toward you see this in Shakespeare when one side wins the the winning prince or king to be hands out titles for those who fought with him and the the religious dimension of the taiping rebellion kind of twists this one you know you you know if you're a normal you know chinese dynastic you know, replace the old one bring in the new one situation You go in, boot the old dynasty, and set up a new one, and kind of everybody gets back to business, but now you're going to clean house because it's the the next dynasty, not the old one. But it's still, this is the dynasty, and this is how it's going to go. But with the Taiping, it's... I mean, they eventually take on the full appearance of being a Chinese dynasty, but they have this idea of like there's an eschatological vision there's an end of the world the good guys going to heaven bad guys going to hell and that's breaking through even right here in the typing heavenly kingdom but that like that—that's one of the things that's really going to screw the Taiping Rebellion. They—they don't—they're not grounded enough in earthly reality. Like, they were strong enough that they maybe could have defeated the Qing. Uh, so, this looking forward to the earthly paradise, you kind of see, you know, some, you know, offices given out, uh, you know, promotion for the people who had been with the movement longest. Moving on here, Uh, alongside Hong Xiuquan's messages about future reward, visions from some of the other leaders about staying in the fight, Uh, like so they they have their messages from Jesus or whoever they're receiving messages from this time, staying in the fight, reinforcing the drive to defeat the Qing, driving out the devils, rooting out traitors, punishing backsliders. And as revolutions bring in new support bases, they have to consolidate the movement. You make alliances, you make mergers, and you have to get everyone on the same page. Purges, harsh or not, are a regular part of revolutions, because you'll have people who started out and they liked you, and then they decide they don't like you. You have false converts looking to bring you down, because they're coming in from the other side. We'll see some of that in just a bit. Um, Qing forces are not letting them settle in. They keep up attacks on the Taiping, even when the the Taiping move on. um, The the few months of rest in this built-up city is going to give them practice running a city. Um, Urban facilities that they've seized control of here are going to make it easier for them to spend time doing their main work being the typing Heavenly Kingdom, and not just doing the setup and tear down of makeshift facilities like if you're always camping. Uh, imagine having your own proper office versus having everything in a backpack. Like having your own proper office instead of like shifting from coffee shop to coffee shop kind of thing. They have the freedom to Start writing a book, leave it all on the table, go to bed, wake up in the morning and it's all still there and just carry on writing. Hong Xiuquan uh, composes a Taiping-specific version of the Confucian three-character classic, an educational primer uh, composed in in easy-to-remember three-character lines. You know, it teaches basic grammar, common characters, parts of Chinese history. This one's focused on Bible stories, God's protection for those who follow him, the Taiping mission in China, and all that. So they they have the breathing space to compose new scriptures for their movement. There's, they come out with an extended version of the, the Taiping edition of the Ten Commandments, In this stage, uh, there's more opportunity for Hong Xiuquan to structure his own palace life, so wife plus additional consorts, and rules about punishments for gossip. You know, because the the ruler wants his women, and uh, nobody gets to question whether that's part of the movement. Which actually, this is something I was thinking about because we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at revolutions and why they work or don't work. So I want to think about the the question of hypocrisy for a moment. Um, Hypocrisy is a real crime, as it were. But it's also a very cheap accusation. So, like, if somebody is evil... But you, the biggest thing you level, the biggest accusation you level against them is that they speed sometimes when they drive. That's not, even where that's a violation of the law, it's not the most serious thing to bring against them. If you want to make a real criticism, you have to get more specific. So let's look at some of the extenuating factors that you know, kind of nudge accusations of hypocrisy to the side. See, hypocrisy is one of those things that could break a revolution, but let's see how that would actually work. So the leadership class will have a different life than that of the rank and file. They'll have more leisure to think better or more regular conditions than afforded to the the rank and file. Because you know, if, if you're planning, you need to be able to to sit for an hour and to just think, okay, what's the most important thing to be focusing on? And, you know, thousands of people are going to die anyway, whatever we do, because the enemy is attacking. And if we attack, we're going to lose people. So what do we need to focus on so that we can actually win? You can't be there in the trenches. So, okay, like that's, that's, so being a leader, you're going to be in, in different situations. You need detachment from the frontline realities because leaders are doing trial and error and the lives of the rank and file are mere resources in in the trial and error. So a good leader will at least make different mistakes, new mistakes, mistakes. So the troops can see the leaders aren't just wasting their lives charging the same thing over and over again without trying something different, trying a new idea to maybe actually win. And they they want to see that their lives aren't being meaninglessly thrown away for an unsuccessful venture. Uh, In the American Civil War, at General Grant, when he's fighting General Lee... The army of the Potomac had fought Lee for months and years, but the the old generals, they'd give up and go away, allowing General Lee to regroup, uh, get new supplies. But Grant didn't disengage. He kept close to Lee, trying to move around Lee, trying to outmaneuver. So when the troops would see that they're continuing to engage continuing to keep in contact with enemy forces even though many of them are dying they can see that they are making progress in defeating their enemy you know so that so even though grant isn't there on the front line with a gun he's he's not wasting the lives of his soldiers and, you know, so this isn't hypocrisy, like, yeah, you go do it, and I'm going to be back here being safe. That's not how that worked. Okay, so, and then if you're in a religious context, a king, a priest, a prophet, uh no, okay, just forget the religious part, okay, a king, a priest, a prophet, there's more value than just their own individual life, so they're afforded special protection. So it's It's not hypocritical to say, you go do this thing, maybe risk your life for the cause, and I'm going to be over here and be the leader. Well, if you just die, the whole cause falls apart. So it's not just you wanting other people to do things for you. But there should be a consistent ideological core core where you can see you know at the highest level at the lowest level that there's everybody following the same program the same plan so now when you're still in the revolutionary underground phase of things extremes are reduced by rough circumstances so real uh, hypocrisy may not come out like so when mao Zedong had wives and mistresses and to uh you know, when they're out on the campaign trail, there wasn't really the ability to accumulate a harem or, you know, have, you know, women brought in, but later when he's the head of the People's Republic and he's able to get his own palaces and residences and things, he can set up his own life on the side and and live by the motto it is good to be the king rather than being the revolutionary that he had been. uh, Hong Xiuquan clearly believed in what he was saying. So Maybe he may have partaken of, it is good to be the king. But then the, the question is, at what point does him living in different conditions become a real delegitimizing factor? Now, he's maintaining something like a royal court because they're trying to operate like a Chinese dynasty, and what the elites say they're fighting for and the rewards available to the rank and file need to align. So if you have slave drivers telling the non-slave peasants that they're fighting for freedom, no, I don't think we're fighting for freedom. We're fighting to preserve your wealth based on you know holding slaves. But then, if the local elites tell local peasants that they're fighting for freedom, maybe they're fighting against some far-off ruler, and more local rule means rule that is better adjusted to local conditions, your end of the empire is not bankrupted to support something on the opposite end of the empire. So when you... If you're if you want to look for hypocrisy, is it are the are the rewards available to the people on the top and to the people on the bottom? Are they lining up somehow? Um, where does you know, what, another question is where does the universal human tendency toward corruption leave off, and where does delegitimizing hypocrisy take over? And the key really is what would delegitimize the movement you can there are different ways to introduce doubt about the legitimacy of a movement into the minds of some of the followers uh, but for hypocrisy to be really delegitimizing okay one the people on okay, this is my own thinking one maybe the people on top don't really believe it it's only a manipulative device. So their explicit belief is in something else. So you can have people who lie through their teeth, but they still believe the core ideology. And we're going to come back to this when we get to the communists. The communists actually believed in being communists. They might lie about being communists. They might lie about letting you surrender. No, we're not going to shoot you. And then they do They they might do all that, but they do actually believe in communism. So because they actually believe in it, you can't say, yeah, no, you don't really believe it. Even if some of them partake in, it is good to be the king and take a little off the top for yourself, if there's still the core ideology that they actually believe in that something even if you hate them you can get behind somehow the two uh, the other principles um, like if you if there's an exception uh, if no other principles apply for why an exception would make sense a leadership class does operate according to different rules as we just went over. If it's a religious movement, maybe the founders or the leaders are some divinely ordained, you know, office or person, or, or maybe Hong Xiu Chuan needs to have the divine family, even though. Uh, he's keeping a lot of his followers separ- segregated by sex. Uh, maybe because he is who he is, he has this separate way of living that's more than just him doing whatever he wants. One thing you can see in the life of Lenin is that there's kind of a a quality of legitimacy to how much his life was subjected to the needs of the cause— that if he was making use of leadership class privileges, it wasn't really to ridiculous excess. He may have had a mistress or two, but he was married to Nadezhda Krupskaya, and that was about it. There there may... I seem to remember somebody who I don't know if it was just like she's so brilliant that he fell for her somehow on the side or whatever, but you know, Lenin didn't keep a harem. Lenin, yeah, you know, appreciated having the Kremlin, you know, all to himself. But he was a hardcore revolutionary and you know for him the problem wasn't hypocrisy it was that he was evil which is a totally different problem okay then just one other delegitimizing thing is the ideology in question isn't true it doesn't apply to real life it just doesn't work so churchill for example may have been deeply hypocritical He's talking about freedom and democracy, but he isn't really wanting to let the British Empire go and be free and democratic. Even though that's his message, to get the world behind Britain to fight the Germans in Europe... And all his stuff about democracy and freedom works out to be a lot truer than the totalitarian forces that they were fighting. So you could kind of get behind the British, even if, you know, the relationship was going to fall on bad times after the war because they want, so some of them want their empire. Other parts of the empire want to go free. But at least under like a free society, there's greater possibility for prosperity because more people can create wealth and it's not all extracted by some elite. Uh, There's greater freedom in people at least not being repressed. So what Churchill believed in was true, what he was talking about was true, even if he didn't totally apply it. So then it's like you talk about the good thing, now give it to us. So the the hypocrisy didn't delegitimize the message, the, whereas you know like a lot of communist countries, they have to radically alter their own way of going about it if they want to survive, if the communist regime wants to survive. You see that we'll look at that in much, much greater detail, in, in China, they, they adopted market economics. They didn't do they stopped class struggle. They adopted market economics because that works. Um, they, and so that's part of how the Communist Party is still going today in China. So the, uh, So whether their ideology will survive the, the test of it being true, um as long as they stay going, it's still an open question. One last consideration on the question of whether the, you know what, you know, hypocrisy, there's the, the excuse, the time isn't ready yet. you know, for bestowing the rewards before stepping into the future we're moving toward, It's really important to figure out how to make it the right time. Give the people something to fight for. Let them buy into this future that that your revolution is going for. Um, This is where the nationalists and the Chinese Civil War will fail. The people have nothing to buy into. The communists uh, have something like they, they turn over land to the peasants. This is your land. Now they execute the landlords. So even if that's a transitional lie, they, they give the people something to, to fight for. Um, if you conclusively win the military conflict, you may be able to step past this one, you know, but we won is a special kind of proof. Uh, and, you know, again, the game resets, the rules change, you might be able to get away with some, you know, some, you know, enriching yourself when the people are done with war and you've won and now you're just setting up shop. By my judgment, the Taiping will not, in the end, suffer from a critical collapse of legitimacy. Uh, We will talk about in coming weeks what they will collapse from, but I don't think it was really a critical collapse of legitimacy because of hypocrisy. Uh, We can test that thesis. If you think I'm wrong, do let me know. Uh, So back to the action. Okay, the Taiping have had, you know, they're in the city of Yongan for about six months. And, but, so cities are very accessible, which makes them miserable fortresses if you don't have a preponderance of supplies to draw on. Cities are like aircraft carriers. If you have one, you have two, three, four, um, or you don't just have the aircraft carrier, you have the whole fleet, protecting the aircraft carrier. So you don't just have the city, you have the surrounding countryside, you have smaller towns supporting it. While they're there, the Qing forces are continually working on cutting supply lines. They're creating their own siege wall outside the city defenses. Contravelation, if you want the fun word for it. They're building their own wall against the Taiping city fortifications. And the purges to purify and bring the movement together aren't just for show. If you look at any Chinese historical strategy, like Sun Tzu's The Art of War and the or the classic novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which has stratagems up the yazoo, yazoo, wazoo, anyway, uh, they're constant references made to agents, turncoats, ambushes, sneaking somebody in, we're not talking about deep cover penetration like Cold War double agents. We're talking about getting someone in to be in there long enough to open the gate, you know, burning critical supplies, assassinating a leader if you can find one. You know, because this is a popular war, you have people coming over to the Taiping side, and so you have some fake recruits who go in and... They pretend to join this, the Taiping, and they want to get into a position where they can open the gates, uh, you know, or attempt to work with locals not sympathetic to the Taiping. Of oh, the Taiping, were hunting these people down, having them executed, and so this is building toward a siege situation. You know, and and siege is one of the most brutal, devastating forms of warfare, but it's the most effective. And the Taiping had been building up the area's fortifications, Uh, and in December 1851, the, the Qing attacked and destroyed a critical Taiping supply base outside the city, but they withdraw because they're not strong enough yet. But, you know, by salami slicing, little by little, they're trying to box the Taiping in, and if they can't take them by frontal assault, they'll just starve them out. Um, in a lot of historical Chinese wars, it doesn't matter how many people have to die. You fight until it's over, and supplies were getting to be a critical issue. Like this is this is a war fought with guns. Uh, they the Taiping were getting sulfur and saltpeter for gunpowder out of some different interesting sources like saltpeter was coming from bricks like saltpeter's a thing that that accumulates on you know on stone faces and bricks and things over a long period of time uh, so if you are critically short of it uh, there are places you can look to get some i guess um uh, they were getting i'm not sure exactly what i read in god's chinese Sun, but they were getting uh, some sulfur like compound from some process they were using with dog blood horse dung repeated boiling in alcohol i don't know what they were doing but they were doing their darndest to get gunpowder and you know in the uh in the, the you know uses of gunpowder like noise making devices like so ah oh, there's explosions over there what's going on over there and then they attack from the other side that's quiet Use in siege warfare, you know, you, you, you put a big mine under the wall and blow it and then, and then you can rush through the open space. Uh, some of the core typing troops were miners from the, from the Thistle Mountain area, and I think they would know how to do blasting. Uh, the, so then, so finally, here's, here's the breakout from the city of Yongan. Uh, it is April 1852, a year away from the seizure of Nanjing. So we're going to—I'll get to that in a moment. Um, using explosives and pots and pans tied to the animal, uh, tied to the tails of animals, who are then going to freak out at the explosions. They—they they do all these. The Taiping arrange all these noisy distractions and diversions to cover their withdrawal. 2,000 Taiping died in rearguard action covering the evacuation. Qing troops tried to pursue the Taiping up into the mountains, where they're retreating, but skillful use of explosives and rock falls prepared in advance allowed the Taiping to defeat Qing forces, and they killed 5,000. So the loss of 2,000 was not inconsequential, but the but killing five thousand of the pursuing Qing was was also a major whammy so they they get some breathing room so they can move out again so we're we're going the the Taiping rebellion is on the road again They're, we're we're going to forward them to Nanjing over the next two or three episodes. They're going to make a colossal leap up the Yangtze River where they will establish their imperial capital in Nanjing and where they will make their last stand about 10 years later in the narrative here. And we're going to... They're they're going to go through some other cities, but the main thing is they're going to follow the river because that's where they can... It's the best road, really. It's, you can haul supplies, you can, you can just drift down the river and cover a lot more distance than you can by just walking through the very rugged, mountainous, hilly, forested South China. Uh, the, the river's always flat and the, the stream pushes you along. So they're, they're going to launch all the way up to Nanjing. And uh, over the, after we get them to Nanjing, I'm going to spend two or three episodes on what the foreigners have been building for themselves in China. So after the treaty ports are opened, after the first opium war, we want to look at the settlements they've been building up, the business connections they've been building up, how they've been trying to force their way into more and more areas of, of China. Because foreign supplies are going to be critical for supporting the Taiping, and foreign forces are going to defeat the Qing again in a second opium war, and then they're going to turn around and support the Qing to crush the Taiping Rebellion. Chinese will manipulate foreign the foreign the foreign imposed system of trade concessions for their own purposes. Uh, foreigners working for the Qing will build the foundations for the Chinese customs department, so putting taxes on imports. Foreign settlements are going to show local Chinese an alternative to Chinese ways of doing things. Also these foreign uh, settlements are going to be used by uh, by Chinese revolutionary movement as sort of a safe haven, like the Communist Party of China has one of its first meetings in the French concession in Shanghai. I've actually been there. Uh, also, Hong Rangan, a relative of Hong Xiuquan, is going to be in British Hong Kong for a few years and we're going to pick up with him uh, when we switch over to using the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom so the 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 uh, the foreign element is going to be a so we're going to do two or three episodes on that so today we talked about how... Being in a city for the first time gave the Taiping Rebellion a real chance to develop, to regain their momentum, to elaborate some of the different things that they're going for. The military campaign doesn't let them sit and rest on their laurels. They're going to have to move toward um, a different capital for their final heavenly kingdom on earth. And you know, so whether whether the increasingly luxurious lifestyle of the Taiping leaders counts as as a uh, delegitimizing life of luxury, we will well we'll come back to that because when they get to Nanjing, they're going to have a lot more uh, opportunities to indulge themselves. All right, this has been another episode of Chinese Revolutions. I've been your host, Nathan Bennett. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash CRRevolu... no, CRPodcast. Chi- buymeacoffee.com slash CRPodcast. Please send me an email at revolutions at gmail.com. Rate, review, subscribe every on all platforms. And I'll see you in the next episode.